Today's episode is brought to you by the Create Engage Marketing Accelerator, our brand new program to help startup consulting founders like you scale your business through digital marketing. This is something that I am really passionate about and so excited that we are able to launch. I regularly get messages from listeners like you and others in my network asking for marketing advice. Everything from what were the steps that I took to launch Create Engage through to what's the best platform for running a webinar through to how do you create great content for LinkedIn and everything in between. At Create Engage, this is exactly what we help our clients do and more. But for many startup consulting firms, our retained support is simply not a cost-effective option. I've been in your shoes and I know how it feels. You want to use digital marketing, you know it works, and you see the results it delivers for others. But you don't know where to start. At this stage in your journey, you have more time than you do money. But you want to make sure that you are investing that time in the right way to deliver return on investment for your business. We are launching our marketing accelerator to do exactly that to give you the strategic advice, the guidance, the support you need at a price that makes it a no-brainer for smaller consulting firms like yours. By joining our accelerator, you will join a network of like-minded consulting entrepreneurs, all focused on growing their businesses. Each cohort will be handpicked to ensure that there is no competitive tensions in the group, giving you the comfort to discuss your challenges openly and learn from your peers. Each month, you will meet with one of our expert team and your fellow Accelerator members for our Accelerator Roundtable, where we will walk through your specific marketing challenges and develop the plan to help you successfully deliver your marketing goals. We'll do this in small, focused groups, letting you get our advice, but also learn from your fellow members and benefiting from hearing the advice we're giving to them to apply to your own business. This isn't the end of the Accelerator, though. Each month, we'll hold a private webinar just for Accelerator members, where we will walk you through everything you need to know and through your top questions, the things that you have asked us to show you. This could be from how to run a great webinar through to how to launch your own industry-leading podcast. We'll also give you our tried and tested systems and templates, everything you need to make your marketing successful. There's a lot in there, but if that wasn't enough, We'll also be bringing every member together into our private LinkedIn community, giving you a place to share your ideas, ask for advice, and learn from each other to help make your marketing better. As this is the first Accelerator program we're running, we're launching January 2021, we are offering all of this for just £750 per month, plus VAT, with an initial commitment of six months. Less than £5,000 to give you everything you need to set your consulting firm up for success. Just imagine, if that helps you secure one project, think about the return on investment and what that could mean for your business. Places are limited, and we have already seen a ton of early interest in this first Accelerator cohort. So, if you want to find out more and apply to be part of our Create Engage Marketing Accelerator, then visit createengage.com co.uk forward slash grow to read everything you need to know about the accelerator fill out the application and we look forward to welcoming you to our first cohort to help you accelerate your business through digital marketing hi and welcome to climbing consulting 
After our short summer break, I am pleased to say that the podcast is back, and what a guest we have to kick us off for the autumn. Today's guest is James Callender, Managing Director of Fresh Minds, the leading resourcing and research firm for the consulting industry. As you'll hear in today's interview, Fresh Minds has a long history in our industry, and they were actually one of the very first search firms that I signed up for when I was looking to make the move into consulting almost a decade ago. I still remember scouring their weekly newsletter for potential roles, and it was great to get the chance to catch up with one of the people behind it all and find out about James's story with Fresh Minds over his almost 18-year career at the firm. Now, unlike many of my guests, James's career actually started while he was still at school, running various business ventures from the school printing press through to leading sales for the school magazine. Deciding he wanted to move to London following university, James began his formal career with two extended internships, firstly at the strategy consultancy Roland Berger, then followed by another at the then leading public relations firm Bell Pottinger. It was these early experiences that led James to take the bold step and become a freelance researcher for the, at the time, small startup research consultancy Fresh Minds. The rest, as we say, is history. And over the last almost 18 years, James' career has grown alongside the business, which he now runs as managing director. Given James's wealth of experience, there was so much for us to cover, and we discussed some really interesting topics in today's conversation, including James's entrepreneurial start, how his teenage business ventures shaped his career, and how those skills that he learned from that early period have helped him get to where he is today. His almost 18-year career at Fresh Minds, how he was able to climb from a freelance researcher to managing director of the firm, and his advice for anyone looking to emulate his success. And his career advice for those of you looking to take the next step in your career, be that moving to another consulting firm or jumping out and becoming an independent contractor. I really enjoyed this conversation with James, and as his story shows, you don't have to follow the structured consulting career path to reach the top in our industry, and that with hard work and dedication, anything's possible. Whether you are just starting out and you're looking to break into consulting, or you're an experienced consultant and you're looking at what the best next step is for you, I know you're going to get so much from what James has to say. So, with the intro done and dusted, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with James Callender. James, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me on to my first podcast. Well, I'm, I'm honoured that this is your first. And you know, for me, this is probably a consulting milestone because your business, and we'll go on to everything that you do and who you are, is you're one of the first consulting career, I guess, newsletters, I'd like say, where I first looked at when I was moving into the industry, way back when I was sort of 22, not sure how to get into the industry. Fresh Minds is one of the, the go-to places. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's very nice to have you on the show all these years later and really looking forward to this. You know, Derry Hughes, who introduced us from Honeycomb PS, spoke very highly of you. Obviously, you've done some great things with Fresh Minds and really keen to dig into all of that throughout this conversation. Starting off, though, you know, appreciate that maybe not everyone will be familiar with Fresh Minds. Most will be. But for those who maybe are less familiar with yourself, be great to get an overview of, of really your background and how you got to where you are today. Gosh, um, yeah, so, so my background is is fairly brief. I mean, I at university did a lot of sort of internships at various banks. On leaving university, I interned at Rodenberger, the strategy firm, and then Bell Pottinger, the now uh, defunct um, public affairs business. And after that was just sort of freelancing uh, as a researcher for this new exciting startup called Fresh Minds. I was essentially a, a, a mind for them, an analyst. 
uh, researching a couple of different markets for them. But I kind of liked the people that I was working with on a remote basis, uh, was invited in for a chat. And um, really in the back of that, I was invited in to join their sort of business development team. And really from there, I've sort of, and that is now sort of 18 years ago nearly. Since then, I've just had a, a, a wide range of jobs across the business and uh, started teams, managed teams, been running the business now for about 11 years and continue to find challenges, be they global financial crisis or global pandemics and a bit of sort of work in between. Yeah, you've, um, your tenure has coincided with some dramatic global events. And we'll, we'll come on to you know, what the future holds post-COVID, because you know, as you were saying just before we dialed on for this, it really has changed how people perceive work, and I'm sure we'll continue to. But I, before we go on to that, I think something you, you didn't mention, but I know we've spoken about before, I guess really interested to dig into actually is going all the way back to your childhood. Because right now, entrepreneurship is it's the golden age of entrepreneurship. It's cool, you know, Instagram is full of entrepreneurs driving Ferraris, doing cool things. But it's not always been that way. And actually, if I go all the way back to sort of you as a child, I remember you said you were heavily involved in sort of sort of enterprises when you were at school. I think you said you ran the printing press. I seem to have found in my research, you, you applied for a job at Lego when you were seven. Now, I'm, I've got to ask about that. You might shoot me down and say that's completely wrong. But I'm going to start there. And then we can go on to your sort of teenage years. Yeah, I've always had a, I've always had a slightly rather tragic interest in the world of work. And yes, I suppose I was um, <laughs> quite keen early on to gain some some employment. So I applied um, and was then rejected by by Lego for a job age age about seven. And my dad actually framed the letter. I was very upset about that, but he thought it was very amusing. They did say go to school, go to university, and, and then reapply. But I haven't yet done that. But yeah, I suppose I've always had a bit of an interest in sort of sales and trading and ideas and um, was, yeah, in my fairly early childhood, was, uh, I was um, used to pick up and clean golf balls and then sell them on to sort of uh, friends of my parents. And uh, really, wherever I could make it, I mean, it wasn't very large amounts of money, but wherever I could buy something and sell it for a bit more, I was always quite interested in that. And I very much so grew up through my teen years, wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was kind of my, the thing I wanted to do. But as you say, it wasn't really the, you know, it wasn't really the decade of the entrepreneur at that point. But I, I certainly learned a huge amount of different skills. And when I was yeah, in my sort of teenage years and at university, I was um, at school, I kind of ran the school printing press, which was kind of a sort of, a, sort of internal business society where you could kind of like you know, sell um, invitations and magazines or printed T-shirts for, for rugby teams or rowing teams. And I kind of got majorly involved with that and then really extended that through into, into university. So it sort of moved into the printing trade at that point. Where did that come from? You mentioned you've always been interested in, in business. Was it that your parents sort of instilled that in you? Was it, I don't know, a family friend, a mentor? Or was it just something that you, do you remember that time you sort of thought, well, actually, I'm, I'm interested in applying for Lego, or I'm going to go and sell golf balls? Where did that drive come from? I don't know. Like I often say it's probably my, my mum's dad, who was a real sort of an entrepreneur of the old school, I think, and um, the, the entrepreneurial world in the 40s and 50s, very different from today. But he was um, always doing a deal somewhere. And again, not huge value, but, but always doing some kind of deal. And he was always very inspiring in terms of encouraging that kind of behavior. And I used to remember when I was a kid, like meeting parents of my friends. And yeah, obviously, obviously they were kind of teachers and doctors and lawyers. But I was always more drawn to the person that was yeah, running the water bottling plant or the carpet installation business. I always found them probably had slightly better stories to tell. 
How did that play out at, at school? I mean, I, I so for those who don't know, you went to Eton and, and making some huge generalizations to someone who's never been to that school. But what you hear in the press is that it's a breeding ground for leading politicians, business leaders. And like you said, back then, entrepreneurship wasn't the direction. I mean, was this something that was nurtured or, or did you find you were fighting against the tide either at the school, but also with your peers? You know, were they talking about how they were going to go and work for banks, politicians, while you were talking about, to your point, you were going to go and run the water bottling plant? Yes. I mean, you're right. It was. I mean, I think most of the kids there are probably more interested in like sport or academia than kind of yeah running businesses per se. So I was probably a bit of an outlier at that point. But I think it did, did it nurture me to do it? No, but it did give me opportunity to kind of get involved in selling. It was one thing I was, I was the business manager for, there was a sort of magazine for the school and the job of being the business manager was to do two things. One was to sell loads of advertising to fill up the magazine with advertising space. And the second was to sell as many subscriptions as you possibly could. And, um, my friend was the kind of editor of the magazine and I was the business manager. I absolutely loved that. And again, I thought, what an amazing place. I was hugely pri- privileged and lucky to, to go there. But what an amazing place to kind of, in my spare time, to have the opportunity age sort of 15, 16, just to go and get local businesses to, to pay for advertising space and then sell lots of subscriptions. So yes, I think it was a very <laughs> privileged platform to get some early hustle in. Was there a, a decision point for you? You know, you mentioned, obviously, you went, you went off to university and we'll, we'll sort of talk about where that led to shortly. But if you're doing this at 15, I mean, I, I didn't, I was very much sort of came to running my own business much later in life. But I had friends who were, you know, the kid who, you know, went to the sweet shop, bought them for one pound, sold them for two pound in the in the school. And for some of those people that that university decision is a bit of a, I guess, a decision point, because you're like, well, actually, I'm enjoying this, I'm making money. And at 15, if you're making a few hundred quid, that's a lot of money. You fast forward to 18, it's still quite a bit of money. And actually, was that university decision for you a no-brainer? And if it wasn't, sort of, do you remember any of those questions you asked yourself to decide, actually, should I go or should I jump out, start working for a newspaper from, from now and, and grow my business career from here? I felt at the time, and maybe it was just the, you know, the peer group that I was in and it was, you know, kind of the, the leaving of school and then, and then university felt like a bit of a rite of passage, not only mm-hmm. just for the academic, but also just the kind of life experience. And I was probably, I probably still am, but mentally quite a young 18-year-old. So it was probably good for me to mm-hmm. go down that path. But yes, I mean, I definitely ran my business at university uh, and it wasn't again, making huge amounts of money, but it was certainly more money than working in a coffee shop would have made me. So I did that. I think that for me, the difficult point was then leaving university. Mm. And as all the kind of milk round and the graduate employers came around, there was I thinking, well, should I just sell, you know, printed hooded tops to university graduates or should I get a real job as a, like a banker or as a management consultant? And rightly or wrongly, I chose the latter. I chose the... Um, <laughs> get a real job that pays like real money and um and ultimately can afford you you know I, I i'm from despite the accent i'm actually from edinburgh i couldn't you know afford to to rent in london without you know kind of assured salary so i, I went down the kind of internship <laughs> management consulting route i think your point there is, is a key one and how was that decision then and and maybe it's less the decision like you say i want to go to london i need a job that can sustain that 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 probably that feels like what took you there but almost how did you find, maybe the better question is, how did you find those early few weeks, months? Obviously, it's an internship you're learning, which is great. But to characterize, and you know, our, our audience is consulting, we, we both work in the industry. It's a very different industry to what you would have done in the sales space. You're going and suddenly you're analyzing data, you're creating reports, you're not doing what you probably spent the last 10 years at school and university doing. 
Did you find that was an adjustment for you? And how did you come to terms, I guess, with that to sort of keep yourself in the internships for as long as you did and, and decide that was the way you were going to go? Well, I suppose it helped me learn what I didn't like doing or what I wasn't good at and also what I was good at. And just to look at those two examples of, of Bell Pottinger and then Roland Berger. At Roland Berger, what I've learned from that kind of early stage of consulting was just like, for me, as someone who's probably, I'm a little bit last minute, I occasionally known for being a little bit late to meetings. This training, this rigorous training by my peers in my pod around me was about you know, really being really good and succinct and clear at signposting points, writing good slides, being able to analyze the so what from data, being able to sort of help, you know, bring out interesting pieces of customer insight or competitor intelligence. And actually, I learned just so much about how to kind of like explain clearly to people, you know, about companies and how companies work within markets. And that was a really powerful understanding and framework that I've used you know, in my entire life, you know, ever since then, in my business life rather than my personal life. And well, on the Bell Pottinger side, which is a more public affairs, but I felt that I, I actually was very lucky to work on the Liverpool City of Culture campaign, which was um, to basically get them to be the successful city of culture at the point. They were losing, you know, the kind of the, the losing side at, at that point of the campaign. And my job was to basically find every single influencer in the north east of England, northwest of England, sorry, and central government to like get excited about Liverpool's city of culture. So I did this huge sort of email campaign where I kind of got 400 names and we sent them an email bulletin every single day throughout the entire lead up to the vote. And then obviously, obviously Liverpool was successful. And I learned the power of like influence and how you speak to the mm. right people, give them useful content, and they will respond. So I learned from both those two quite chunky in terms of it's quite a lot about about business. Um, but yes, I think the point is, I probably wouldn't do well in a large corporate because <laughs> of the kind of lateness and um, general manner that I might might display. <laughs> we'll jump around a little because I kind of, I really do want to ask your advice for others. So maybe we'll do that a bit later because I know we want to talk about career advice. There's tons in there, both for people who are looking for jobs, but I kind of, I'm intrigued your advice. Out of interest, do you ever go back to Eton and give talks? It may be different now, as I say, because entrepreneurship's cool. People probably want to hear from you, not the banker and the consultant. But do you ever go back? And if so, what are the things you tell the kids in that sort of keynote that you give? I haven't been invited back yet, to be honest. I need to obviously um, be either a bit more infamous or famous to get to that point. But no, I mean, I do offer advice to people, to young people and old people the whole time about, about jobs. And um, yeah, and I do. I try to help people um, understand because I think a lot of young people, be they school leavers or, or university leavers or college leavers, mm. they see kind of adverts for industries, be it advertising or marketing or law or banking. And they really, they see the kind of public popular conception of what an industry or a job might be. But those never really, to me, you know, open the lid of the tin to let you see what's really inside those industries and jobs. And so I spend a lot of time speaking, you know, uh, university careers fairs and, you know, with, with people who come as candidates through our, our, our company and just also in the wider network of life, trying to help uh, explain what the actual job role is like, often to put people off because you can get slightly, you can slightly fall for, you, you look at the kind of graduate brochure, you see a sort of very good looking young analyst with a graph, which is pointing upwards, looking out of a window and you think, wow, uh, that could be that person advising that global CEO. And the reality might be, sadly, that you're working 14 hours a day for six and a half days a week and um, your girlfriend left you several months earlier. So you need to be open and honest about people, what they're actually going to be experiencing you know, in the job market. 
<laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm laughing because it, it reminds me very much when I was at university, so I was at York, and I remember I wanted to be a lawyer for all of probably about three months. And there was two reasons. One was the um, the freebies were the best out of everyone. And the second was they were the only ones who, who published their salaries in the brochure. And to me at 21, and they still are a lot of money, but they looked like a hell of a lot of money. And it was only when I realized to what you said, you know, the actually what law involves, particularly the the amount of hours that you were required to sit at your desk for that money, that I decided against it. And uh, yeah, let's keep going with this. Where do you sit on, there's a really interesting thing now, and this might be too far, sort of too early in the career path for you, but for people like yourself who have that entrepreneurial streak, you know, back when you went to university, was it £1,000 fees free? Where were you on the, just to place it for? For time. Well, actually I was free until my last year. So the decision I imagine then, do you want to spend three years having fun, drinking, eating pizza and doing a bit of study and sports? Probably quite a compelling proposition. Where do you sit on that now? You know, now that it's 27,000 or whatever it is, plus all the rest, are you seeing, particularly, you know, with the firms you, you recruit for, I mean, do you see a shift in that? Actually, are people more willing to accept sort of apprentices, people joining the workforce early in our space? Or actually, is that still very much it's a closed shop unless you've got a degree from a sort of top 10, top 20 university. Yeah, I mean, I think the game has completely changed you know, in the last 19 years from one of, yeah, basically slightly right of passage, yes, expensive, but a kind of an affordable luxury of life to now being a really big financial decision for families, for young people, um, or for those that might support them. So it's a huge shift and it's definitely changed the entire game on sort of the talent and this early entry level, level talent. What have we seen? I think probably most uh, employers still on the whole, I think the kind of graduate ticket uh, is still important to them. And obviously a lot of our clients are international and looking for international graduates. But at the same time, particularly those large companies that can afford to, so the big, uh, you know, the big four and the like have definitely embraced very actively kind of, you know, school leaver talent, entry level talent, a whole lot more and have had some huge success at doing so. And I think the other thing is it's now it's kind of now completely socially okay to not go to university, even if you could. Whereas mm. I think the kind of perception was, if you're good enough to go to university, you should go. But I think you can get on and get ahead if you start your career, you know, having not uh, been to university. There's plenty of evidence to suggest it might actually help accelerate you, you a little bit faster earlier. So yes, I'm slightly led by our clients on that, to be honest, mm. as, a, as a provider of, of kind of early talent services. And um, I think it will evolve. I mean, now you think at top universities, are asking their students to basically not come back to university for the next, you know, month, or so next six months or next year, do the whole thing remotely. I wonder whether my seven and four year old children will be going to university in quite the same way that you and me experienced it, Nick. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, and it's, uh, and, and I asked James for you know, the same reason. We're, we're getting to the point where we know people with kids who will at some point soon have to make that decision. And, and it's hard for, I guess, the reasons you've said. And I, you know, I, I only ask this because I know many of my listeners will be in the same boat of, when you and I went, it was considered the normal, the thing you'd do. And I guess it's, you know, there's an interesting question. And you mentioned it with sort of you being a young 18 year old. So I think, you know, I was very similar. I could not have gone into the world of work at 18. I still remember, you know, my internship at 20 with the FSA. I was sort of mind blown. And frankly, I what's probably something I'd laugh at today it took me about three days to do because I needed that rite of passage, as it were, that learning. But what are some of those, I guess, to your point around what some of the clients you work with look for? What are some of those skills where they're like, actually, we can take that person at 18 versus, and this is more to help someone with their self-reflection or to help their children or family members. What does a, yeah, you're ready to go out in the world of work 18-year-old look like versus not? Are there some skills that you think, actually, yeah, if you've got this, 
give it a go. You know, if you've got that entrepreneurial drive, go straight out versus if actually you're, you need a bit more of that finishing school, you're probably best doing the three years. I don't know if you've got any any sort of guide on that at all. Yeah, I mean, I think generally everyone needs to be kind of work ready and might, there might be confidence, there might be some behaviors, it might be just some some skills which they need to have or just the understanding of what, like, what it's like to kind of work in an office. So I think it's really important that schools, maybe universities, but help people with that work readiness. Because I think that is a, there's probably a huge barrier to those who are told not to go to university and then go into the world of work and they're not kind of work ready. So I think it, I feel it's incumbent on schools you know, or advisors to encourage it to, to help young people to be kind of work ready. And that's everything from the discipline of work, like, you know, turning up on time, unlike me, but, you know, working hard, um, you know, being clear in your opinion, being succinct and being polite, but challenging in the office or, the, or in the supermarket, wherever you, you happen to work. So, um, yeah, I think you need to be, we, we, need, to be, we need to help if you're looking, looking from an economic point of view, we're trying to, you know, create lots of jobs. We want people who are really going to take those jobs and make the very, very most of them. So I think it depends on the individual massively, but hugely important that you know policymakers, business owners, employers really give much, much more work experience to people, and that could be in the form of a very short, you know, podcast or video through to week days or weeks in the office. I think that's a really important thing that we could kind of encourage. But the thing for me, I've experienced as a you know part of our business is head something, and we'll come on to that later. But I do think Charlie, the founder of Fresh Minds, once said to me, you know, people kind of hire for skills and fire for attitude. We should turn that around and we should, you know, hire for attitude and train for skills. And I think that's so true because actually I, the people that I work with and I've worked with you know, many clients and candidates on my own team, attitudes and the smarts kind of getting to the point quickly. That is what in my industry, and that's both consulting and, and, the, and the head something world tends to kind of come, come out and come to the fore. So I definitely encourage lots more positive attitude within work. Yeah, and, and my team is much smaller than yours, but where it has worked exceptionally well, it's been exactly the same. So no, completely agree. To bring us back to yourself, you know, we talked or you talked about sort of some of the skills you, you learned at Roland Berger and Bell Pottinger. And actually thinking about the sort of, to bring it forward from our last conversation, what were actually the skills that you found given your entrepreneurial sort of early exploits, that when you landed in those businesses, start with Roland Berger, okay, you might have been late, you weren't on time for meetings, that was a skill you had to learn. But what was it that compared to your cohort and your peers, you found sort of easier because of the, the things you'd done before? What were some of those skills you were able to bring forward from those entrepreneurial days that really helped you in those early days in your consulting career? One thing that always jumps out was obviously a lot of consulting is kind of research of sorts. And you can do desk research, which, uh, you know, which is kind of not dissimilar to a university research project. And then there's obviously customer research and speaking to competitors, customers, suppliers. And I think by being kind of fairly confident about talking to people, I talked to you know, all sorts of people, I could quite quickly, you know, get on the phone to the you know, head of printing procurement at, you know, the New York Times or whatever it would be. And have a good conversation with them about, you know, how they decided to buy ink or whatever the particular project that we were kind of working on. So I learned the kind of versatility of my communication style was, was seemed to get a bit of cut through. But also you get to the number of understanding what customers really think about stuff and products or whether they don't really care at all about products. They just buy it because it's cheaper. 
So that's probably the one skill I could bring to to a consulting firm. There are other ones, but I'd probably be the only one that jumps to mind. <laughs> this might be taking us way, way too back, but I love the example you give. What was your trick? How did you get those people on the phone? Was it uh, you knew to call so-and-so to get from point A to point B? Was there a sort of a script you used? Did you have a, a sort of a trick that you'd taught yourself to do that? I think you've got this like a sort of 10 second moment on any sort of cold type call whereby they're thinking this is a cold call and I'm going to try and end it as soon as I possibly can. So that's your kind of window to to, do, to be a bit different. And often it would be you know, just apologizing for, for interrupting their busy day or being sympathetic to something. Or, but more usefully, like have something that they've done in the paper or the press that you've picked up that no, the other cold caller hasn't and then pick up a conversation. And then actually, I think on the whole, much like this podcast series, people do quite like talking about themselves and their industry. And that's kind of why they do it. So actually speaking to a fairly interested party about what you do and the pressures of the supply chain or the pricing within your market can be interesting. And, and it is. I mean, the evidence from Fresh Minds as a firm over the last you know 20 years is, you know, business leaders do talk to consulting firms and private equity businesses about industries. And there's loads mm-hmm. of loads of um, people who happily chat for, for, for hours about it, which is great. It's a great point. And you know, it takes me back to the book that I genuinely think everyone should have to read at some point in their schooling, which is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I don't know if you've read yourself, but it doesn't sound like you needed it. But it, those points, be interested in other people. It's amazing how much that can open doors and just genuinely start conversations. And I think too many people, like you say, whether it's a cold call or frankly, a client project you're trying to deliver just will sort of drive to the outcome without trying to to build that bond or, you know, the sort of terrible corporate language rapport and actually it's get interested, find out about people and that will lead to places. So yeah, I love, I love that. I've never, no, I did have to do cold calling. So it's, it's a tough game. It's a tough, tough game. We've talked a little bit around it and you obviously, you know, highlighted it in your, your background, James, but why don't we move on to Fresh Minds? And actually it'd be great if you could take our listeners on the journey, because like I said, I know Fresh Minds as the search side, but as a business, it's much more than that. And also, and I think most interesting for, for where we're going today, you know, it's been through a whole raft of evolutions and changes, splits, mergers, et cetera. So could you sort of take our listeners on the, what has that journey for Fresh Minds been over the last 18 years as you've climbed the ranks there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Fresh Minds, um, it started, in, you know, I think this, this, this podcast is going out in September, which will actually mark the 20th anniversary of, of our founding. So I'll take you on a kind of quick potted history of, of where, where it began. But yes, it was founded by these two great entrepreneurs. Charlie Osmond and Caroline Plum, they kind of turned down jobs at McKinsey and Company to just to kind of take a year out to launch their own, their own business. Amazing. The initial idea was yeah, primarily in the research world, which was we know a bunch of clever people. If we can get some corporate clients on board who have some issues to be solved or issues to be researched, then we can pair them together and then deliver, you know, and Fresh Minds would kind of do the quality assurance and the topping and tailing of the research. We could then deliver research at a fraction of the cost of you know, a consultant or a market research house. And then you give, you know, clever PhDs and MBAs cash and you have happy corporates who, who understand their business problem a little bit better. And then I joined kind of fairly soon after that. So I joined sort of year two uh, as was. And by that point, we were doing yeah, quite a lot of research. That was our, our main business. And we were just starting to do talent, which is like, you know, and that actually came out of the research business. And, and the client had said to, to, to us, well, I love the research, but I'd actually love to hire the analysts who wrote the reports. Um, would it be possible to kind of get them on, on, on to, to, to our books as, as a permanent member of the team? And really from that moment, and that was actually a McKinsey partner who 
of former McKinsey partner who kind of helped us design my career for the next 18 years. He came up with the idea and, and, and that was, that was the beginning of our talent business. So we kind of grew them together as one business. So we had a kind of a unified sales team selling both sort of consulting products and also the kind of talent offering. But that by about a hundred staff, it was kind of fairly hard to manage. So we actually split the, the business into two. So we had a research business, then a talent business. And at that point, I think it was about 2007-8, I took over as deputy MD of our talent business and the research business kind of went its own way. And as things happened, we kind of worked you know, in the same offices, but you know, different P&Ls and different ownership. As life happens, our research business was, uh, was rebranded and actually sold onto Populous um, about 18 months ago now. And we'd had a slight handcuff on us for our talent business and not doing consulting research anymore. And because of the sale and the new name, that the Fresh Minds business that, that I run with, with Adam today is now allowed to do research again. So we've kind of gone from research, talent and research to now doing separate to them being together again. So a few kind of um, jumps on the way. But the kind of central thread remains key, which is at the end of the day, you know, uh, we are a professional service firm. We're not like, you know, sadly not quite as big as the big four, but we're trying to get there. Um, and we deliver our work in a kind of, in a sort of talent-led kind of way uh, through, a, through a network that we kind of find, manage and deploy. So the business today, if you kind of look at it as we kind of sort of come hopefully out of the side of the kind of lockdown and, and the first, but I hope the first and only wave, maybe the first before the second wave, we now operate kind of three major sort of business areas that we focus on. So number one is sort of permanent recruitment. That's finding anything from an analyst up to a kind of partner level person for consulting firms, banks, private equity, corporates on a permanent basis. Our second business is our sort of on-demand workforce. That's where you can hire an analyst or a consultant or an expert for a day, a week, a month. And um, that's hugely popular. And, uh, and actually, we were one of the first companies to ever kind of do that. And I think we've kind of what was kind of seen as a bit kind of wild and crazy 15, 16 years ago is now very much um, the norm. And our final business is our sort of more typical consultancy business, which we call manage projects. And that's when, you know, a large American private equity firm says they want to buy a chain of sunglasses companies and we will help them to conduct you know, the commercial due diligence to ensure that they get a good understanding of their customer behavior around that particular retailer you know, in that example. All of those three units are powered by the network and that remains absolutely key to us as a business. Well, I think there's a lot to pick up on in there, James. And I kind of, I'm just deciding where to start, but we've got plenty of time. So let's start almost towards that end. It's, it's, a, it's a much bigger question, but I'm interested, how has that changed over particularly the last few years? You know, Do you see in the industry itself are more people going to what you said, that on-demand side? You know, are you seeing more consultants going to become inverted commas sort of contractors and 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 go that way as opposed to the perm side? Has it been consistent throughout? Some people say that COVID's going to lead to a spark in sort of people working remotely, flexibly. H- has that been coming for a while? Or actually, has the number of people who want to stay perm been the same for donkey's years? Number of people who want to be sort of independent stayed the same and actually it's just the press that sort of bigs it up either way yeah i think um i mean yeah i mean the project so yeah contractor business has definitely grown in the last five years a lot faster than our permanent business and that's partly because we've invested more in it but b i think as you say it's kind of the trend and i think you see the kind of gig economy playing out for you you know for the uber drivers or the delivery sort of business models and i think you're seeing if you look at it from a professional services point of view 
you know, the law firms, which can now deploy lawyers on demand. And the same with consulting. You know, we've been harking on about it for 20 years. And finally, you know, our very long campaign, people are also beginning to do that to, to hire, you know, consultants on demand. And it's great on both sides. I think from the supply side, so from the consultant, they can have a much, uh, you know, freer year where they can control the types of projects they're working on, the types of clients they're engaging with, and also maybe spend more time doing something they enjoy. We've got one great chap called Ben, who's a very keen skier. So he makes sure he does at least three to six months of skiing a year and about six months of consulting. Got another gentleman called Rick, who's a big filmmaker and he does a lot of making of films but he also does a lot of consulting for large corporates so having that kind of flexibility to do both is increasingly popular from the supply side and yes on the client side just because there have been so many management consultants and strategy consultants working in corporates or in private equity they now know the kind of thinking and brain power they're looking for on their own projects or their own deals so they call you know a company like us and say, you know, I want Jim, Jimmy or Sarah or whomever who's done, you know, three years at McKinsey and two years at a digital transformation specialist. And I want them to, to work on this project with me. So it's kind of worked. It has definitely sort of come of age. I think it's got a very long way to go, to be honest. And I, I, I think that the big four will, you know, fast forward 20 years, will have much, much, much larger on-demand consulting workforces. I think it's um, as long as they can secure, assure the kind of quality assurance piece, then it feels like a you know a natural evolution of of the market, and hopefully fresh minds can play our own little part in that. So we're going to come back to the contingent because I've got a question that I just through friends and people in my network I think you'll have a really good perspective on. But I can't leave that question alone, and the reason for that is so one of my previous guests was Harry Gaskell, Chief Innovation Officer at EY, and you know one of the big points he made was was exactly the same as you, which is contingents growing, and actually what that is doing is eroding the the pyramid model. Because you, you know, people can can and want to become independent, so actually you don't have that pyramid. He saw a real shift in our industry. He was like, "Look, we as EY will not survive in the current form unless we change how we do business." What's your perspective? Is it the partnership model will still exist? It's just instead of seventy or eighty percent perms, it will be twenty. Or do you think there is a more you know a wholesale change coming where people like yourselves are going to be taking some of that pie, changing the model, and suddenly you sort of you move to a world where the partnership is not the go-to model for consulting firms? It's a big one, but I'm interested if you've got a, got a perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I've had calls through COVID, you know, about that exact ratio. You know, our current contract workforce is X and our permanent workforce is Y. And this is the way we see the slide rule moving. So it's definitely on the agenda of two of the big four. Definitely mentioned that to me on one of the several thousand Zoom calls I've um, endured in the last, <laughs> not endured, enjoyed in the last uh, few months. So that's definitely, um, that's definitely a kind of truism. In terms of, you know, contingent or perm, I think like it's probably uh, like all things, it's more nuanced than that. And I think it's not necessarily binary. I think you know, people like you might do two years as a freelancer, two years as entrepreneur, and then you go back and join as head of something or other, another consulting firm. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I think consulting firms need to be more tolerant of, of different ways of keeping getting talent in at the analyst, MBA, you know, sub partner level. And I think they will, you know, think of innovative ways of doing that. But yes, I do. I do think that uh, the shape of, of consulting firms will be will be very different in the future. And I think yes, the main thing will be maybe the partnership is just the kind of business development team bringing in and scoping out large projects, and then the staffing thereof is done through a combination of a permanent bench and then also you know, augmented with a sort of flexible workforce. I think the thing that definitely seems to come out, at, you know, if you look at even McKinsey's or, or the big four is 
when I started working, you know, within the consulting world, I remember someone, I, I don't, I, I probably misattribute this great to McKinsey unfairly, but I think that someone said to me, you know, our people are so smart, we can put them into any market or industry. And within 24 hours, they'll worked out the major drivers or, you know, or how the market kind of operates. And that's like, put a smart person into a problem and he or she will kind of like start to kind of work it out. What we've definitely found across every single one of our mandates when they want someone at kind of consultant level and above, so let's say four years up to 30 years experience, is that our clients are just want expertise, be that functional mm-hmm. industry, in a way they never wanted it before. So I think, and that's therefore driven the, the huge amount of growth of kind of boutique yet specialist consulting firms, you know, specialist healthcare firms or specialist ICU firms, you know, all within the consulting world. So I think you're seeing that kind of shift. But yeah, I think that said, you know, if, if consulting firms pay partners crazy money, then people will go and work for them. I think. <laughs> yeah, and it's, well, it's, I guess the, the interesting one on that, and you'll know this much better sitting where you do, is is consulting the salaries, like you say, partners and you know, crazy money. Are the generation tomorrow wooed by that, or does it become the next Mark Zuckerberg, sell your shares in your, your IPO or your tech firm and actually move out? And I, Again, I like this because we're going into places I, I definitely hadn't thought we would. But how have you seen that change? You know, are you seeing over those 20 years, has there been a noticeable shift in terms of like 20 years ago, just to characterize, you know, 20 years ago, consulting was the career everyone wanted to be in. And you had that huge pool of candidates versus say, has it shifted? So actually, are you seeing more people say, well, this sounds great, James, but actually I've got this offer from sort of tech firm A, tech firm B. Are you, are you seeing more competition coming or again? You know, is that something that the media is hyping up and actually look, people still go into consulting. They still want to climb the career ladder. There's still that demand to pursue it as a career. No, yeah, no, definitely a huge change. I think we used to run this once a watch program, which uh, we sort of poll, you know, the entry level talent coming out of the top universities and business schools across Europe every year. And every year, 85% of our top 100 were going down either banking or consulting. And that was the kind of chosen route. But now, you know, just look at it going back to 2012, we'd run the same thing. It was banking, consulting, still number one, followed by sort of big tech, which was your kind of Google and Amazon. And then after that was some startups and entrepreneurship. And I think if we ran that same survey, you know, this week, we'd see startup, entrepreneurship, tech, be that working for a big technology company or working for a startup within the D to C tech market or whatever, whatever happens to be, that is uh, still, you know, probably as attractive as, you know, I think be first equal with consulting and banking. There's still plenty of people who want to work for banks. I mean, we run a number of large graduate schemes for banks and, you know, we can get several hundred applications within a few hours, which is quite astounding. So it's still, there's still a talent coming in. I think what you'll find is the entry level talent will still maybe go to those good, fairly assured kind of, um, baseline skills, be it a lawyer or banker or consultant. I think what you, what what they what I know happens is they they often leave be it after three years or ten years because yeah you get stock options in Tesla or Amazon or whatever else and it, it definitely draws the eye. Mm. Um, if you just look at the head of you know one of the guys who co-founded Digital McKinsey, you know he's now our head of digital for Lego, and that for me is a really good example of. It's a dream job. Take, I was going to say, I can't leave this because I was going to go here anyway. I want to come back. I'm going to put on the shelf the the point around the guy who skis and the guy who does his film because there's a massive conversation there. But let's come back to you, Jay, because you, you've teed me up 
for exactly a question I was really keen to ask off the back of what we talked about. In consulting, there's sort of there's some some truisms in it as an industry. And most people will stay in a firm for two, three, four years. Let's say make consultant, they'll leave. They'll climb two, three, four years, make manager, senior manager, leave. And and it is fairly typical to see people in our industry do two, three, four years at a time. I think the really interesting thing for yourself is, as you've said, you have been with Fresh Minds in all its different permutations for 18 years. And I'd be really interested in, this may sound like a stupid question given you've done it, but I'll, I'll let you answer it as you feel, which is, what's kept you there? What made you stay in one place or one company for 18 years? And actually, what have you benefited from that that maybe people who are hopping around sort of job to job don't don't get so much? Gosh, that's a difficult question. And there's probably, you know, there's what I've gained and probably what I've lost, you know, on both sides of that in terms of a, of a career choice. I think, you know, why have I stayed? I have, I often say like, for me, it's, um, the, the work. I'm naturally a connector of people uh, and I'm really interested in business kind of problems. And therefore, whether it's the headhunting or the contract side of things or indeed the consulting side of kind of like helping companies with business problems, I've always been really fascinated by the work. We're extremely lucky to work with some of the world's most you know, iconic and demanding clients. And therefore, the bar has always been fairly high. And I've enjoyed that kind of challenging, you know, environment from a sort of client side. I find it you know, very, very interesting. The second thing is, you know, I, I joined a very impressive team, two great founders, I mentioned earlier, but also a great team around me then. And it was fairly small then, about eight or nine people. But as it grew and got bigger, you know, I've always been genuinely delighted to come to the office nearly every day. I mean, some days fairly less keen, but on the whole, great colleagues, uh, you know, fantastic and ethics uh, and attitude within the business, which has definitely sort of kept me there. But to me personally, I suppose I was lucky because I was, I joined a fast growing company. I, it pro- I was probably wildly able promoted to, to sort of lead on some of the sales team in my early twenties. Then I got to help. I kind of helped to pitch the idea of our you know, growing our interim business, our contract business, and they kindly took me seriously. And then again, wildly promoted to then lead that team. And then a bit of luck, but you know, the market grew really well. And that therefore kind of had a financial reward and a kind of just, I felt that it was kind of working. And at that point, you know, this is kind of nearly 12 years ago, the opportunity came up to be a managing director. And there were three of us in the running to for two jobs. And actually, I didn't get it. Uh, Alistair and uh, I think it was Jeannie were, were, were got the job and uh, the jobs and I didn't. But I was deputy MD to Alistair. But I, again, really enjoyed being deputy MD. It was really good. It was brief. It was only a, sort of um, a year or two. But I suppose on the back of that, I did a fairly good job and then got promoted to, to managing director. Again, still in my 20s, like 28, 29. And again, I thought it was a huge privilege to, to run a small company at that age. And then was quickly greeted with the global financial crisis. So had to hone up my leadership skills to take us through that. And what I think, you know, our board have always been very generous with me in terms of, you know, I've been, you know, obviously we have occasional rubs and disagreements. But on the whole, you know, we have been able to build a business that was you know, that I and, and now me and Adam run together, um, you know, fairly autonomously. And whilst I didn't found the company, I've been clearly part of it for a very long time and I've sort of slightly created it in an image that you know Adam and I that we kind of like and that offers probably more flexibility around children or flexibility around sabbaticals for for our staff but I think you know that 
is the future of work in our view. And um, we want to have a sort of inclusive and you know a business that kind of encourages that kind of talent. So yeah, I, I, I genuinely have loved it. I won't lie to have many times where I've you know been offered other jobs or thought, why on earth am I doing this? And could I not earn more elsewhere or, or do something more creative for less elsewhere? But I, I yeah, just been very lucky. You've teed me up, so I'm going to ask it. In those negative times, or you know, those low moments, or when someone's come knocking and said, "Here's a, you know, here's an offer for either, like you say, significantly more money or significantly less responsibility for, you know, not a lot less money." Do you remember any of those times specifically? Any of the ones that really stuck with you, and and what was it that that kept you? And I, I guess I'm less less around sort of fresh minds, more for yourself. You know, what, do you remember any of the questions you asked yourself, or close friends, your partner, sort of? What was it that through those times you evaluated and to made you say, actually, you know what? No, I, this is a great offer, but I see my future at Fresh Minds. Yeah, every time I have been offered, offered other roles, opportunities, well, obviously taking me very seriously and being you know, I was very courteous and understanding of things. Yeah, I remember one bank said to me, it was, a, it was a sort of fairly famous investment bank, or some merchant bank probably of the old school, but they were like, why on earth would you want to work here? You're already running your own company. That sounds like a really good thing to be doing. And that kind of got me thinking that I probably actually had so much more autonomy and freedom and, mm. you know, client control age 29 than I would have age 50 working for, for them in their sort of private wealth team. So I think that autonomy has been, has been, has been really key. But I think I've also had to learn like what my weaknesses are and like what I'm not good at and be really clear on my skill sets and what, you know, I probably have worked out is that if you go back to that, you know, we talk about the kind of decade of the entrepreneur. I hate talking about entrepreneur singular. I just think that's just not a fair reflection of reality. I think every mm. business is a team. And whether that's a team of 20 or a team of 200 or a leadership team of two, I think it's really a really key to be really clear what you're good at, but also really clear what your deficits are. And actually, Adam, who is now my, my business partner and, and, and great friend, but he, he joined Fresh Minds Oh, just over 10 years ago. And he was our group COO. So he was running, we had three businesses then. He was running the kind of the kind of finance operations of, of the group. And it was Ch- Charlie and Caroline sort of recommended that if we were going to split the companies into being completely autonomous and away, that Adam and I might join forces. And I'm sure he'd probably laugh when I say this, but I do think we've got a very complementary skill set together. Mm-hmm. So I think he definitely covers my deficits. And I think that I'm therefore given more of a platform to do what I'm good at, what I enjoy. And that teamwork, you know, is really good. And I frankly, not that Adam would be interested, but I'd happily launch a t-shirt printing company with him because I think we have a nice balance of skills um, that, you know, would ensure that to be you know, fairly successful, I hope. I haven't I told love, him that, by the way. I was going to say, I love the idea that James, you, off the back of this and COVID, you're going to start a, a T-shirt printing or maybe mask printing. We recently got our own branded masks, and I think that will be the you know the business of 2020, 2021. Start start printing masks. Maybe that could be a fresh. I mean, it's probably a bit of a tangent, but you've got the corporate buyers who will buy you know thousands of masks at a time. I think you've got a route to market here. Yeah. No, well, interestingly, as it turns out, um, sadly because of the whole you know COVID, we, we had to obviously furlough quite a number of our team. But 12 of those furloughed generously uh, joined up with the COVID testing network and actually gave up their furlough time to work you know, for free, as it were, to help bring on loads and loads of private labs nice. for COVID testing. And, you know, got doing now tens of thousands of tests a, a month, I understand it. And now that I understand is becoming a business. So they are now, you know, selling testing to corporates so that if you wow. go into, you know, 
a large engineering company, uh, you will be tested every day when you go in and then your result will be given back to you, you know, seven hours later and therefore it can ensure a kind of bubble within the corporate. So yes, I'm sure there will be new opportunities for, for people through COVID and into whatever, whatever happens next. Amazing. No, I love that. And uh, we'll come to COVID a bit uh, a bit later on because I just want to touch on something you mentioned there, you know, or two parts actually, because you know, your point around weaknesses and and augmenting your skills is really key. And, you know, again, I, I I agree with you. I kind of, my business is much younger and much smaller, but it's it's not a one-person sport at all. And, you know, the, this is where I think social media has a lot to um, a lot to answer for in that respect. But you mentioned around the over-promotion. And I guess there's, there's an interesting tension. And, and again, maybe this was just your sort of maturing through your 20s and, and you know, after that. But how did you, in that over-promotion, one way you could characterize it is actually you're really bloody good. And so you've got nothing to fix. How did you, I guess, become self-aware enough? And were there any questions or people you talked to to almost identify those areas that you needed to improve, both in terms of blind spots that you just needed someone else to take care of, but also the skills you needed to really focus on as you took the level up to make sure you could achieve what you had been sort of promoted into. So it wasn't an over-promotion. It was just a promotion that you walked into. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm being a little flippant there. Obviously, I worked really hard for it and, um, and was very keen and delivered, you know, fairly good work for, for my team and my clients. But yeah, I think it, it's just, it, I find it hard, like leading or managing people kind of who are just a little bit younger than me or, or older than me when I was fairly young, when, you know, that wasn't probably what most people in their mid twenties wanted to be doing. Um, I found that was sort of slightly sort of stole my corporate childhood from me in a way. But seriously, to the point of like deficits and skills. Now, I think I just and also you're when you're young, and I don't mean this to be like anti-young because I'm very pro youth. But it's more like I think you don't know what you don't know quite quite a lot, and therefore things like awareness or self-awareness can take some time to kind of come through and mature. I'm still learning that every day today. But I think I'm a big advocate of like coaching and um, getting external support and challenging yourself so out with of your company because your manager yeah. or your MD or your boss is always going to have maybe something of a motive, you know, all, you know, a motive of your own career within that firm. But I do think getting a really, you know, it's worth the best money I've spent on my personal career has been, you know, external coaches because I think they've helped me to uncover, you know, be more honest with myself. And as you say, like social media is just, and I, I, I kind of use LinkedIn a lot, but it's quite exhausting looking at all these wonderfully successful companies who've just raised lots of money from lots of amazing funds, <laughs> not really making a lot of money themselves, but it all looks great cosmetically. And that's quite tiring if you're kind of going into the jobs market or you're running a sort of boring company that doesn't, hasn't just raised 20 million pounds of money from some San Francisco based fund. So I think it is important to kind of check in stay keep real have great friends around you friends that with similar interests that can support you and be kind of open about your your vulnerabilities and your kind of weaknesses because yeah everyone has them clearly and uh, i think you have much more interesting and juicy conversations with people when you start to kind of open up and talk about it and it's exactly the same for me as a headhunter you know occasionally i'll you know run searches for fresh minds with our clients and you do often get those interviews where someone rocks up and they kind of look and behave exactly like their LinkedIn profile. And it's like, gosh, it's just amazing. It's just been some fantastic trajectory. And like, we don't talk about stuff like, you know, challenges of marriage or challenges of work or promotion or money or whatever happens to be the issue. And I think it's much more useful 
to go into those conversations. Obviously, don't don't immediately blurt out you're getting divorced, but maybe just let's have a kind of conversation around your career, your drivers, what's really really important to you. I think ultimately that makes me happy because I can try and our firm can get people into more interesting jobs and projects, which makes them happy and aligns with their interests and skills. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there's a massive point in in there around actually, I think the world of work, particularly in the sort of consulting space or, you know, the, the corporate space is becoming much more human. I think there is a lot in that sort of with various movements sort of driving forward, actually, you can be more than just your LinkedIn profile. And it's what we help our clients with is actually how do you how do you talk in a way that isn't sort of corporate circa 2005? It's how do you bring the humanity out? And I think to make sure I'm sort of understanding you, you on that point it is actually be yourself, be open, be a bit vulnerable, and obviously within the right bounds, the right times, but you know, that will help you in your career, be it internally, looking for jobs, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, at a corporate level, you need to interview people, you know, on their skills, experience, behaviors, and their trajectory. And that's really important if you're hiring senior leaders or managers, you need to make sure you're you're kind of doing your full diligence on their role and all that kind of stuff. But there are there are natural breaks in your life, and that often is you know between jobs or whatever else. But it's I think important just to check in on yourself and go, do I really want to be a management consultant anymore, or do I really want to do this? And but even more, and having that really open discussion, and how that then marries with you know your your husband or your wife or your partner, with your children, with your commute, uh, with your health and well being. I think it's just important. Whilst it might not change anything in terms of your career trajectory, I just think it's really important to kind of go into those conversations and go to those employers being able to talk a little bit more openly about those those sort of personal things. So there's a there's an interesting question in that and I guess this would fall into the advice for candidates bucket because I you know I'm I'm 31 now I've had my sort of mid 20s life crisis is why I went to launch an estate agency business cold calling people at 7:30 at night trying to sell them houses or get them to sell the house for you that's a that was my experience of cold calling and it taught me a lot. And there's an interesting point in that I've actually when you're speaking to candidates or you're speaking to you know people you mentor or just people you give you know giving advice what are the questions you ask people you know you tell people to sort of really really dig into and what I, what I guess I'm getting at to add some color is I think in consulting like you said it's a very prestigious career you know it's the top career people want to work in it, as your surveys highlighted it pays very well and I think particularly as you get to that sort of late 20s early 30s you know you're you're earning good money you've got a prestigious title etc it can sometimes be quite hard for people to really sort of take a detached look and decide whether that is right for them, because the alternative might be a sort of 50% pay cut, or it might be, a, you know, a they won't have quite the cachet when they're at the barbecue with their friends, and they're the only one that isn't a banker, a lawyer, a consultant. What questions do you sort of get people or, or suggest people really ask themselves or talk to their partner, their friends, their loved ones about to help them decide if this is the career for them? Because I think we all know lots of people at the top who love it, and I'm sure you know, like I, you know, there's lots of people at the top who probably don't love it. And it's almost how can people who who aren't sure decide if actually, yeah, I want to take that next step and I want to really push on to, you know, to make it to the top in this career. It's a tough balance, isn't it? Because you've got to marry, the, or got to work with the economic reality of like, you bought the house, you have the mortgage, and then you suddenly take a 50% pay cut and it doesn't kind of add up. And as a, and as a good analytical consultant, you'd work that out faster <laughs> than your, your husband or your wife. So yeah, it's always that kind of balance. And I often, you know, sadly, actually, I find you meet great, great sort of partners or, you know, senior associate partners of, of consulting firms, and they come wanting to work for a, you know, innovative, fast-growing startup business. And they tell you they're happily work for a quarter of what they're on at the moment. 
And when push comes to shove, typically they say no, because at the end of the day, they really can't afford to do it. They've, they've, mm. it's, it's baked into their costs of living, sadly. So what do I recommend? I think much like a graduate starting their career, uh, the same should be of, of a, someone moving towards partnership, is to make sure you're really, really clear what's inside the tin of the role, like what is really happening in there. And I think one thing that a lot of very analytical, very clever consultants who maybe just enjoy the kind of the, the substance of the work and, and the project management side of project itself, they often find that jump from kind of being a, a real expert at you know, aerospace consulting to then being a salesperson, ultimately a revenue generator for, for McKinsey's or Bain or whoever the consulting firm is. That's a huge shift. And they spent 15 years doing the kind of kind of multiple PhD type thing, projects for um, aerospace companies. And suddenly they're told to go and chat up, you know, chief strategy directors at you know, BAE Systems. And that's just not necessarily, you know, where they sort of saw, saw their career going. So again, good coaching and support from the leadership team can really help art, maybe not even put you in that role in the first place, but certainly help you understand what the expectations of that role might be. Whereas if you look at kind of Racket Ben Keyser or, or Unilever, your first job is sales. So, you know, your first job is driving around, you know, Woking, selling Coca-Cola bottles to local convenience stores. You've got a really clear understanding of how the sales machine works at the local distribution level. So when you become chief marketing officer, you kind of understand how pricing and promotion impacts sales at convenience stores. That's very different in consulting. It's the kind of the last job you ever do in a consulting mm. firm. So we often find a lot of people who've been brilliant consultants in terms of the kind of the, the body of the work, but maybe if you put them in a kind of sales sort of environment, they're less comfortable, I think. Yeah, and I, you mentioned it there, and it was something I wanted to touch on from your own experience around that sort of mentorship. You know, you made a key point of actually, obviously you want great mentors in your firm, but actually having an external sounding board is is really good. For anyone listening who's, who's sort of like, yeah, I, I want to do that. I mean, did you, just I infer because you mentioned you spent money, did you actually go and seek sort of professional coaching and, and you know, it was a, it, you paid someone who you were like, yeah, you're the best at this, I'll work with you. Was it more of an informal mentorship? Was it a mix? Or how did you approach finding that external coach? And for anyone thinking, yeah, I'd like to do that, what would you recommend they do to get the right person for them? So two things, I'd say kind of unpaid and paid. So unpaid, I would highly recommend anyone, you know, who, who listen, who, who's got this far in the podcast, still tuned in to seek lots of mentors, um, you know, through your whole career. And that might be someone you meet once for a coffee or someone you meet, you know, once a month for, for lunch. I think getting external understanding and awareness and just advice and um, impartiality or indeed biased opinion is just really good. So seek the advice of many, uh, obviously, you need to kind of make your own calls and your own decisions. But for me, I've been very lucky with all of my clients who've been quite keen to help advise me on my career or Fresh Minds as a company. And I've always, you know, if everyone's offered me advice, I've always been very keen to hear it. And I always encourage them to do that. And I'm lucky because part of my job is to go meet, you know, five or 10 clients a week. But I would, if you don't have that kind of job where you can naturally go and meet clients, I would definitely, you know, spend time investing in one's own network of, of mentors or support to help you kind of to have a, a wider perspective. And also it could be future careers, could be future investment opportunities. So there's no harm kind of building an active network, but you need to do it actively. And it's not like an old school network. It's a professional network of those in yours or in other industries. And the second thing on paid, I mean, the coaching industry is possibly a little bit of a minefield in terms of finding the right fit for you. Mm. I've had 
probably three coaches in my career uh, and two of the three have been absolutely first class because they one of them he actually specializes in sort of entrepreneurial leadership so his sort of experience is the kind of typical challenges that I would face in a week or a month or a year he kind of covers in some depth with a lot of other you know successful or indeed unsuccessful entrepreneurial types of people so he's been very challenging and very very helpful to me and yes typically you pay them but it's definitely worth getting a good one because I think you could be you know, I worry a bit about those who are given bad advice from bad coaches. Yeah, that's that can be really bad as well. So that I think is why the kind of coaching world is into kind of non-directive coaching, where they kind of help you to answer the, the difficult questions that you're posing for yourself. But it sets it in a nice environment whereby it's not you or your wife or your girlfriend or boyfriend telling you what they think you should do. You're kind of given a nice safe space, as I think you said to me earlier, to kind of to make some decisions and to kind of correct your trajectory. And I'm only going to ask because I know someone will kick me if I don't. You said that you've had two out of the three have been good. And when it's unpaid, it's a different type of relationship. When it's paid, you're paying for a service. How have you found a way to decide good from bad? Is it personal fit? Is it a cult? You know, just do you get on? Is it a track record? You speak to their previous clients. You know, if someone's going to go and spend a lot of money on some coaching, how can they find, like you say, they, they're, they're more likely to get a good one that fits than a bad one that doesn't? Yeah, I mean, I think that you, the, you, I think you do need the accredit, accredit. I can't say the word accreditation, but that you, you need someone who's qualified to do it and has the, uh, you know, it's, it's a more, it's an ever more mature art and science, and therefore there are there are more frameworks that are clearly working that aren't. So it's a definitely getting someone that's accredited from one of the top sort of coaching sort of um, schools. I think it's also chemistry though as well. I think um, it's a. It, it's a lot of listening. It must be very tiring being a coach, listening to these frustrated overachievers uh, sharing all their woes with you. But yeah, you want someone who's a really good active listener, and that's the key thing. I think it does all lie on yourself. When I sort of speak to friends, you know, after kind of drink number two or three, you suddenly feel that kind of openness coming, and it's about kind of listening to what the people. We all kind of know what we should do, um, but we don't always kind of act on it. So I think a good coach will help you kind of realize you know, where you should be, what, you know, what you should be focusing on in your, in your job or your role or in your, in your life. Yeah, no, really, really good advice. I mean, I, so I've personally, I've had a very small amount of coaching from a um, sort of a friend and a, actually now a former sort of big four partner who, who does this and just the having, like you say, someone, I think you said, you phrased helping you answer your problems yourself is massively powerful and someone who is outside of your world. It's not like you said, your partner, your girlfriend, boyfriend, mum, dad, whatever that looks like. Now, the last is probably the last one on career advice, because I, I, I want to come on to sort of COVID and, and where that takes us. But I have to come back to it because, again, you know, I talked about my midlife crisis or my, you know, I, there's got to be a better name for it now, maybe quarter life crisis. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And I, I know I know I'm not the only one. But to that point around asking yourself difficult questions for a career, you know, I speak to a number of people, you know, I've been an independent. I know how lucrative that is. I know a number of people who sort of would love to do what the two people you described have done. You know, they, they don't see themselves as climbing the consulting career ladder, but they love consulting or they enjoy it. And they can do the analytical math quite quickly to say, well, I could get into that world. You know, I could do six months traveling the world or skiing, six months working. I guess the question is really, how do you help people who maybe are nervous of that? So some of the fears I think I've heard people say is, well, will I be able to find projects? Will I, you know, will actually, if I go away for six months, will I then come back and I'll be starving for six months because I don't get work? Will I lose my edge? You know, what will people judge me about? You are working with these people day in, day out. So I'd love to get your take for anyone listening who's thinking, you know what, I'm, you know, 
I don't want to become partner, but I'd love to spend three months a year skiing. What steps should they take to be able to structure their career and their life to be able to do that? You know, through something like that sort of on-demand offering that you offer at Fresh Minds. Sure, and and, and I'll maybe just start with the downsides, and I'll explain how one could think about their freelance world. But you know, there are definitely, you know, freelance is not the norm. It's probably ten percent of the consulting workforce are freelance, and the, and, the, and the balance are, you know, permanent roles. It's tougher on pension. It's tougher on healthcare benefits. It's tougher on promotion, and can be tougher in sort of just yeah, your communication of your career through a LinkedIn or CV. So. It's, definitely got some challenges but as i said at the beginning it's definitely coming of age i think what you've got to recognize is it's a you know you've got to go and find the work yourself rather than be given the work by the resourcing staffing team at bain or whoever else you, you worked for before and that's a big shift so you've got to look at your time in any month of your 22 days you work in a month and you need to make sure you're spending you know two or three of those days kind of marketing yourself so people know that you you exist, uh, what your skills are, and, and when you're available. So obviously, I'm going to be saying you, know, you should use Fresh Minds to to kind of be your kind of talent, your your kind of resourcing platform. But there's clearly across the world companies with similar ideas to Fresh Minds that you should plug into. And that's uh, you know for us, we put several thousand people through projects. You know some very short projects, others you know long ongoing twelve months rolling projects but getting a good fresh minds or international equivalent would be a good step obviously you can do it yourself as well going through your own network and that can be great because you might have the industry knowledge it was someone you worked with before within a similar setting and that can also help um, you to find things but i'd always say much like mentors earlier like go broad like have a wide network and clearly mm. going to a kind of platform you know like ours like fresh minds can help you get access to a whole range of projects or companies that frankly you would never have heard of and I think we're quite good as a firm because we can find people what I call tier one projects from kind of tier two brands. So really interesting work from companies you might never have heard of before that aren't you haven't consulted for before or haven't heard mm. of. So make sure you plug into the good the good platforms. Just to, to build on, and maybe this to your point earlier, James, around actually being open to an extent about conversations. You know, one fear, I can't recall if anyone's directly said this to me, but I'm sure I had it when I was a contractor. Is, you know, if I come to Fresh Minds, come to you, James, and go, actually, James, I want a contract, I want a part, you know, a, a, a sort of interim role, but then I do want to go skiing. I'm going to be off skiing for three months. Call me in September. I mean, is, is that something that actually you know, works for, you know, platforms like Fresh Minds? Because you know, I guess that's the fear for some people. If I tell you, look, actually, I want to spend a certain part of my year traveling or, you know, on holiday, obviously within the bounds of it working for the project, actually, is that a conversation that helps you place the candidate over sort of ruling them out, if you like? Well, the dynamic at Fresh Minds, like the dynamic within, you know, a strategy firm is fairly similar. Ultimately, the pipeline is quite short. So, you know, you might write a proposal for a project which kicks off on the 1st of September, and then, you know, Bain or Fresh Minds win that project. And then we've got to start that project at pace next week, because we've got to find 10 people in three locations to kind of work on some big healthcare mandate. So, you know, if your friend who's currently out sailing the Greek Isles in a COVID compliant fashion, we can't let him or her know, you know, about that project coming, because we didn't know that project was coming in February when, when they started out on their kind of voyage. So, um, you've got to be appreciative of that sort of shorter sort of, you know, from proposal to kind of project kickoff is typically, you know, two or three weeks. But I suppose at the same time, if there's plenty of volume of work coming through for, you know, for us or other platforms, then actually 
you can you can be pretty confident that you know work will come up if you've got the right kind of marketable skill set and you can also make yourself available earlier so let's say you are currently on the greek Isles and you want to come back in september you can do interviews in august even if they're on your zoom or teams to make yourself available that's now much much more kind of you know open and and possible when away it probably wasn't before and you need to kind of like the other thing uh, my top tip would be like just be nice and helpful to you know those headhunters or consulting firms that you're kind of working with because if you're kind of polite and politely persistent i call it you can actually you know someone can kind of do that promotion work for you you know whilst you're whilst you're sort of you're not in the country or doing something else so it's, it's definitely worth doing and, and that's why there was a premium to it you get paid a bit more than you would if you had the same job you know work at kpmg or bain you've got to bake in the fact that you know you might be unemployed for you know a third of your time um mm. and that's a different sort of reality to what you might have been used to in, in your in your past and then on top of that there might be some you know global pandemic whereby you know projects just get cut you know willy-nilly and suddenly you're not working for six months and the government will won't bail you out as a psc so there's various sort of things you just kind of be be aware of but i think it can be a great i mean obviously i'm hugely biased but I think it's a great <laughs> can be a great way to kind of augment those skills that you've learned as a consultant. No, really, really good advice, James. And I guess it comes to that point, doesn't it, of actually when you, if you consider it like a consulting firm, as you know, as it is and as you are, so actually you can be on a project three weeks after you get back from the Greek Isles or, you know, not skiing right now, but, you know, from the ski resort, you just have to, I guess, you have to have that confidence that it's going to come through. You know, it won't be that you've got a, pro- a project waiting for you, you know, month one and you leave at month six and go join the job. It's, you know, month six, you pick up the phone and then you're waiting. But actually, provided we're in a normal times, that's likely to come. And I guess that, you know, you mentioned it there around sort of global pandemic and we, we touched on it earlier. I mean, actually, where do you sort of right now, but take it over the next six, 12 months? You know, what, what impact do you see the current pandemic having on the consulting industry you know you're at the sharp end of it the hiring you know what are you seeing are is the industry you know having to change as a result of this and if so you know what do you see as some of those changes coming through be it resourcing be it sort of projects be it client types be it engagement models what what do you see as the big changes both now and you know playing out over those next six to twelve months there's not been one easy question on this podcast yet um, <laughs> there's another one for you i mean look I think at the beginning of the of the crisis, I think a lot of projects were just continuing as on because no one had kind of thought the cost reduction was necessarily going to have to take place. So a lot of people were kind of blindly running across the cliff without a, a huge amount of notice necessarily being paid. Obviously, the very top tier firms were quickly actually employed by governments and, and major corporates to do strategy and scenario planning work. So actually, we found our top top clients were actually very busy. I mean, clearly there was there were drops across different industries, but aviation, whatever else. The kind of planning and how one plans through a kind of crisis became your clients were pretty busy. Interestingly, in the last couple of months, we've seen things kind of unwind a bit. So you've seen large workforce reduction from a number of consulting firms. Uh, some consulting firms, you know, yeah, reimagining what their workforce might look like in the future, declaring to me they're going to have a more flexible workforce. Some not going to go back to the office until resemblance of what was pre-COVID an office next year. So um, I think it will be a huge shift. I think the kind of the good thing is I think it's been an accelerant of of stuff like flexible working. I think it's been an accelerant of remote working. I personally I don't travel a huge amount with work. I mean I also travel to to clients in the UK, but but yeah I mean I just there must have been a lot of air miles wasted for kind of fairly mundane meetings or proposed presentations which could have been done you know, on a video conference or Zoom or whatever else. So I think there'll be some kind of changes. 
and maybe you know some other positives you know on you know diversity inclusion the environment that will kind of come out so i think hopefully we'll come out of this horrible very challenging time for healthcare for education but thinking about how business can be a bit better but we've got a massive jobs challenge that's going to be our big big thing as we move into 2021 highest unemployment for you know for as long as any of us have known we need to kind of help get the economy kick-started that's going to be a big push for, for everyone no, completely. Um, and our, we're, we're coming on to, to easier questions. It's, um, if they weren't hard questions, they wouldn't be fun. I mean, there's an interesting thing in there, actually, and I don't know, I might just be making this up off the back of what you said, but to that point around travel, I mean, as a for our industry, actually, does this open the door to people who may have left? So, you know, if I take myself, one of the reasons I left sort of being a consultant was travel. You know, I, I love consulting. We All of our clients are consulting firms. I, I love the industry. I, I bloody run a podcast on it. You know, you've got to be quite interested in something to do that. But actually, did I want to, you know, my, my travel was mainly domestic, but would I want to travel, train, fly, et cetera? No. But actually, I mean, do you, maybe it's far too early to call, but could that be one of the sort of the small benefits when we do get the, the economy back is actually people who weren't into consulting because they had to live out, you know, live out of suitcase four days a week suddenly are saying, well, you know what, if I'm only traveling one day a week or two days a week, that's quite a nice balance. You know, I, I get to meet some people, do something different. Could, could that actually, am I sort of over-romanticizing that? Or do you think that could be one of the things that comes out of this? Yeah, I think it's very likely. I mean, I remember when we first went into this kind of lockdown, the notion of hiring someone entirely remotely, as in, in a full-time job, was like a complete anathema to me, having done this for a very long time, and most of my clients. And I'm pleased to report we have been trading still over the last six months and people have been hired in full-time jobs without ever having been met before. And all of the projects we've resourced have been, I think all of them, we've done you know, a number and they haven't met any of the consultants you know, face-to-face. So that's definitely you know, a big shift. I mean, I'm personally quite keen to get back to the office, not every day maybe, or as safely as able to, because I, I think inferencing and selling is a bit harder on Zoom than I find in person. I think that what I found is the relationships I had before, so my existing team or colleagues or my existing client network, those relationships have been kind of enhanced by kind of going through this, this challenging environment together. But I do find it quite weird to kind of, I don't know, do myself down, but I find it quite weird to sort of randomly arrive in someone's sort of study, <laughs> sell the fresh mind's dream, which is normally a very invigorating experience, but it can be a bit odd in entirely kind of, you're just sort of zoomed into the actual key point of pitch and then kind of zoomed out again. It can be a bit... <laughs> Can be a bit tricky, and I think you know, frankly, it's just a bit of variety. It's probably probably going to be good for people as well. Yeah, no, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I'll be honest. I was about two months into this. I was a firm, you know, I was an evangelical work from home forever, uh, and then we actually just moved into a new office ourselves. And there is something just you can't, you know, you can't put your finger on it. But just having people around you, having you being together as a team, I buy what you mean with the sales side. I mean, it's interesting for us. I mean, we you obviously attended the webinars we did with Derry, sort of. It's created opportunities. So, you know, the idea you could get 50 people on a Zoom call for free to listen to your thing, you know, was just not possible before. But I agree with you. I think we we weren't born to live in our study and spend eight hours doing Zoom calls a day. So hopefully, hopefully we will soon get back to normal. My, my personal, I'm hoping the schools go back and everyone just gets back to normal. I know that won't happen. I know there's a lot more at stake, but I kind of, I feel like the school's going back to a bit of a watershed. So we'll wait and see, I guess. 
Yes. So, James, really enjoyed this chat, and I'm conscious it's late. I'm conscious you've given up your evening for this, so thank you very much. Uh, we've got two last questions. I'm hoping these will be on the easy side, so forgive me if they're not. But these are some wrap-up questions, and these are ones that I ask every one of my guests. And I love the similarities, the differences, and take these as you want. So they're starters for 10, and, and I'll let you take them in the direction you want. So the first one is about books. So we've talked about mentorship, guidance, things that have helped you. One of the things that helped me and has helped me throughout my career is books. And I'd be interested if that is the case for you. I've had a number of guests who who don't read books. They get their sort of you know input, motivation, knowledge from other sources, be it video, podcast, magazines, whatever. But are there any books or, as I say, other resources that you find yourself either giving or recommending to others often and if so why is that yeah i mean i'm probably not a huge book reader i'd love to but i just find the balance of yeah running a small business having small children and being exhausted at the end of the day means i don't read sadly as much as i would, would like to and my wife always teases me for reading kind of only business books which is really fairly tragic but i do read voraciously about business i mean i i, I make sure i cover all of the, the business press from the highbrow to the gossip uh, i'm very interested in business my big passion in life is politics, UK and US politics, I find very, very fascinating. In terms of books that I kind of, you know, have read that I've found you know, interesting of late, the Sorkin book, Too Big to Fail, which was about the 2008 crisis, mm. I did find that really interesting for me because it was the first time I'd really ever seen the kind of interplay between kind of politics, economics, and sort of policymaking kind of on the fly. And it's, it's quite a big book, but it kind of goes into quite a bit of detail about kind of Hank Paulson's diary and just the sheer kind of madness these guys are kind of navigating, which I found you know, super interesting because I kind of thought as a child and I actually studied politics as one of my courses at university, I kind of thought there was a kind of big grand plan that everything was kind of clear. And if this is a recession, you press this button. And if there's uh, too much growth, you press that button and, and um, policy can respond. I think as we've seen even the last you know, few weeks, the kind of interplay between kind of business, policy, and economics is and the global pandemics is is really interesting, and I I'm intrigued to to see what the fallout from from this case has been. But in terms of kind of series gossip, I did enjoy the the Bad Blood book, okay, which I read last year, just because you couldn't kind of make it up. But this is just the most crazy story of influence from the founder of Theranos, Elizabeth. And I do think there is a lot of hype and um, a bit of a lot of BS in business uh, in the investment world on LinkedIn. <laughs> and to see it played out at such scale with so many incredibly powerful, quite a lot of them were men, powerful older men, investing in a clearly very bright younger lady was just a kind of really intriguing story. Mm -hmm. You couldn't make it up. You saying that's placed it. That was the one of the it was one of the military contractor where they it was a lot of smoke and mirrors and not much else. Was that the I may be ruthlessly paraphrasing that. But was that the one I'm thinking is that the right one? Yes. Yes. So it's um yes, it's the it was the blood testing business, uh, where they could do a diagnostic test from a thumbprint of a prick of blood. So the science was a kind of fairly wonky at best. Um but it's more they managed to convince exactly the I think, who was it, Mad Dog, the general Mad Dog, what's his face, was the, the mateless, um, was the general who was convinced that it was good and it was sort of put through into the, to the US Army, even though it wasn't actually effective. So it's just, yeah, for me, a very interesting read on, on that. And, and I must say, I've witnessed a lot of amazingly successful companies, you know, as a, as a provider of services to, to clients over the years. But there are many companies which I'm always like, how on earth does that work? Like, that just all sounds too good to be true. And then... <laughs> Very often it is. Sometimes it isn't, and it just is an amazing mm. success. I've been proved wrong. But very often there are people who manage to convince investors, staff, 
leaders, employees to to sort of follow a dream that isn't necessarily always there. James, if if we had longer, and maybe this is one for a, a, a beer when we can physically meet up, you know, I, I I share your view. I you know maybe it's my failing. You know, people who start sort of tech businesses make a lot more money than I ever will. But the idea of running a business where it doesn't make more money than it loses, you know, that was you know, my basic economics at university said you know, success is profit over loss. And yeah, I I'm like you. I I I think there are a lot of people out there who. The investment, the hype is is what they seek, not the not creating a business that will deliver. But hey, what do I know? And uh, just as an aside, have you seen Fire Festival on Netflix? Did you ever watch that? Different world, similar concept. And I think, yeah, shows quite starkly how if you believe in a vision strongly enough and drive, you know, if you drive off a cliff, people will follow you if you say it's a good cliff. And then last question, and this may be a wrap up because I think we've dived into some of this, you know, during the interview. But again, I I really like recapping this so that we've got it for people. I also tend to consolidate these actually into an episode every so often because I think they're so powerful. But this is about your advice. And this is you've got three people in front of you, you know, probably candidates that you've interviewed or spoken to throughout, you know, throughout the last 20 years. And you can give each one of them one piece of advice. They're three people three different stages of their career. One is the analyst. You know, they've just finished university. They're making that first move into the world of consulting. The second is, call it manager grade. You know, they're, they've been in long enough to have choices, but they're still far enough away from partner to not see that as the obvious route. And then the third person is actually that person approaching partner. You know, they are that director who is looking at partnership and deciding, is this for me? And as I say, the, the one question is, what, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those? Great. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, the, f- the first disclaimer is everyone's sort of different, clearly, in their kind of motivations and what they're looking for. But yeah, number one, I think, for the analysts, the, the entry-level analysts, is just make sure you're really clear what the role is. Um, so be really clear, I'm going to work for this consulting firm, which does this kind of work, which is analytical or qualitative or uh, lots of travel or, or no travel or whatever it happens to be. Be really clear on that role, what the outputs are, what your working hours will be like just to make sure that aligns with what you want to do in the first really valuable first you know, two to three years of your career. So the second, so that's a kind of manager level, what, five, seven years in, let's say. Mm. Yeah, and that's quite a common exit point for a lot of people coming to us as candidates. And that I think, yeah, that's a bit of a check-in, which is, you know, do I want to, am I happy? I don't mean that in a kind of basic way, but, you know, is it, am I doing something that I think I want to continue doing for another five or seven years? Or is this maybe a natural break in the road and time to kind of maybe use that skill set that I've built up and transfer that into you know, the investment world or the corporate world? I think one bit of advice I would also give for those managers who are leaving at that point. So that's two bits of advice. But the no, 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 go, go for, for it. it. More than the if you, you know, you've had a kind of fairly sort of um, cloistered life at sort of Oxford and, um, and then at some top tier consulting firm and you're, you know, late 20s, early 30s. Suddenly, you're then in the strategy department at some more typical corporate. I think there can be a bit of a challenge between kind of being the smartest guy or girl in the room, as it were, to then actually getting stuff done and recognizing the kind of different levels of empathy to kind of get things done. I think a big theme of kind of running a business or running a team or running a, you know, a, a store is that kind of bias fraction making things happen. And I think when you're at a consulting firm, just having the smarts is enough to kind of get you around. I think that in business or you know, if you're kind of talking to 40 store managers at Tesco's, you need to kind of have more than just a, an, a spreadsheet to prove you're right. You need to kind of be able to kind of carry people with you. I think a lot of our candidates have found that a huge shift. So just making, but it's a shift that many make and many make very successfully, but just be really aware of the difference of move from kind of academic confines of, of a consulting firm 
to that of the kind of real world of, of business, of the trading entity of business. And for that partner or the uh, sort of associate partner, sort of director level person that might be going on for partnership, yeah, I think it's really that sales point. I think I think most consulting firms, um, from what I know, um, expect their partners to to bill significant amounts of money every year. That requires a commercial grit, which is very different from just being really good at advising on aircraft braking system strategy or sales strategy. It's it's just you know meeting people, going to events, networking, hosting Zoom calls, sharing podcasts. And writing proposals to close fees. So that's a different kind of job from maybe what you had before. I think it's just really important for you and your employer to just kind of have that conversation, see if you're comfortable with that next chapter. But if, if it's not right for you, you still have got an amazing, amazing, like the best business training or, or uh, strategy training uh, money can buy. And you can then transfer that skill into the corporate world or your own consulting firm or, or do something else. But again, it's really worth having that conversation. So I think whenever you're shifting jobs, be it every, every couple of years or every five years, definitely worth checking in as to whether it's, it's lying with your longer term ambitions. Because we all change as we get older, you know, what you thought was really exciting when you first left York in terms of your where city or where you wanted to work or who you wanted to work for, that changes as, as, as life changes. And just being really aware of that context is, is super important to make sure you have a kind of happy, fulfilling and engaging working life. James, I think I think that's a brilliant point to finish on. And it, that's one of those points that actually is so obvious, but actually we all forget is you're not, you know, it's the reason I don't have a tattoo, interestingly enough, is I can't remember if it was something I read, something I saw on the news or something my parents said is think about you 10 years ago and think about what you think about that now. And actually, is there much from that life you'd still want? And, you know, that's not to say you won't, but actually to what you said, have a think about that. And actually is why you went into this, you know, the motivations, the drivers, the same. And I think that's a massively powerful point to finish on. So thank you very much for this. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to talk to you, as I say. It's been great to meet the man behind the you know, the newsletter that got me into consulting all those years ago. And yeah, sort of our industry is small. And it's great to meet someone who's been in it as long as you have. So thank you for today. I think the last question, James, is just if anyone having listened to this wants to find out more about yourself, they want to find out more about Fresh Minds and how you can help them either as a client or as a candidate, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? So yeah, feel free to sort of um, get in touch with me on LinkedIn and yeah, drop me a note and maybe, maybe reference the podcast so I know the connection. That's always helpful. And if you really got this far into the podcast, you probably deserve my email address as well. So that's um, <laughs> jc at freshminds.co.uk. And, and yeah, again, please reference the podcast so that my team can direct that email appropriately. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to be invited onto your podcast. Well done for what you, you built up. And um, and I feel very honored that we can do it on our 20th anniversary. No, thank you. What's to say? You know, really, really appreciate you coming on, James. Thank you for sharing your, your email and your details. I'll put all of those. I'll put all the links to the books and things we've discussed as well in the show notes. So anyone who has made and, and you'll be pleasantly surprised is my hope. You know, the, the amount of people who do listen this long or has kept me going for 68 episodes or so. So, yeah, I think you, you know, you'll get a few emails is my hope. You know, touch wood. But no, thank you for that. Thank you for coming on. And yeah, all that's left to say is, you know, really appreciate it. And all the best for the rest of your week. Great. Cheers, Nick. Cheers, James. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.